0: Hello and welcome to Big Ideas Into Action. This is WRI's podcast, Relaunched. I'm Nicholas Walton. And in this episode, the big idea is fixing water-related conflict and the role that machine learning can play in identifying the places most at risk.
1: The early warning system is an effort to predict water-related conflict throughout parts of the developing world over the next 12 months.
0: Then once you've predicted it, how to prevent or resolve it, and why those efforts need to recognise the critical roles played by women.
2: When women are involved in making decisions for peacekeeping, those decisions tend to last longer.
0: We can hear the rumble of aeroplanes. We can see the anti-aircraft fire going up, red tracer fire. And then the flashes from the aeroplanes, one, two, three, followed... By the thuds of their missiles as they land. The sound of an air attack in Yemen, captured by a BBC World Service documentary.
3: After like 20 minutes or maybe half an hour, I hear screaming, too much screaming. Around here, all the building is full of families. I was shocked.
0: The war in Yemen is mostly blamed on the involvement of other countries, but water has also played its role. The country is arid, water is scarce, and has been a source of underlying tension and fragility for years. Now, during the fighting, water infrastructure has been deliberately targeted, leaving millions without safe water to drink or grow crops. Increasingly, the critical role that water plays in causing or prolonging conflicts such as the war in Yemen is understood. Dominic Duval works on these issues as senior economist for the World Bank.
4: Water insecurity and fragility, it's a complex dynamic. I think that the clearest way to, to put it would be that water insecurity is a destabilizing force and is a risk multiplier. It is very rare that water itself is the proximal cause of conflict, but it is often feeding into a number of other risks, underlying risks, political risks, inequalities, and through that contributes to being a destabilising force.
0: So what kind of example explains that type of dynamic?
4: Essentially, it's because water is something which needs managing. And whether it's a local community who are managing the water or a local government or a national government, the perception of people is that if they're not receiving services, be they for water supply and sanitation or for irrigation or access to a wetland, then they feel aggrieved by that. And it plays into and compounds other grievances that they have. Whether it's through flood, whether it's through drought, or whether it's through pollution. Those are the three, too much, too little, and too polluted. Those are the three drivers of water problems. And the issue is that in somewhere where institutions are relatively strong, this grievance can be managed. But in a situation like Somalia or Iraq, where institutions are not strong, then there's a much larger chance that a grievance like the lack of water supply in the recurrent summer crisis in Basra plays into general grievances about the relative power that there is across Iraq in Basra compared to Baghdad or other parts.
0: Dominic Duval of the World Bank. So, what does this look like in a specific situation? Take Lebanon, for example. It is experiencing a slew of challenges, from an influx of Syrian refugees fleeing the war in its larger neighbour, to political and financial chaos, and of course the explosion in its capital Beirut that was in the news headlines around the world recently. But, according to Asil Narmani, who works with International Alert in Lebanon, water is a complicating factor that is exacerbating Lebanon's problems.
5: We are witnessing in daily news and around the globe the rise in violent conflicts that are linked to natural resources and environmental shocks from our changing climate. And this also applies to Lebanon with natural resources being one of the uh, main flashpoints of tension and conflict between and amongst communities. Uh, Lebanon's geographical location within the Middle East gives it uh, distinctive uh, water resources and a national wealth of water that includes uh, rivers, uh, groundwater, basin water, and and whatnot. However, Lebanon has not yet taken advantage of such wealth since almost half of its population, and this includes not only Lebanese but also uh, the refugee communities, Syrian and Palestinians, So almost half of this population does not have access to safe drinking or serviceable water. Those resources, water resources, are further strained by factors such as urbanization, pollution, uh, rapid population growth, and inefficient water management. And one example of how such factors are adding pressure to water-related conflict is that Oftentimes, the use of water resources is being politicized by political actors. So, for example, the use of water resources by refugee communities, for example, is used by politicians. They would try and influence the public opinion towards the refugees that would be more in agreement with their own. With the protester groups now being active on environmental issues following the October social movement that took place in 2019, this could increase tension between the government and institutions on the one hand and those activist groups and the affected local communities by such projects on the other hand. There was a general perception by activist groups that The state had failed to deliver basic services, and yet it had embarked on large-scale infrastructure projects which were prioritized by the state solely on the basis of the politics of apportionment amongst political factions while downplaying the impact on the environment and public health. And this contrasted largely with the public who increasingly prioritized such issues.
0: Asil Namani on how water exacerbates the instability in Lebanon. So what can be done about this? The answer is quite a lot. The World Resources Institute is part of the Water, Peace and Security Partnership, which is unpicking the role of water in conflict. Here's Charlie Iceland, WRI's lead on the project.
1: What we're trying to do is identify hotspots throughout the developing world where water-related risks are are leading to conflict, uh, destabilizing migration, or other types of uh, insecurity. So so this is an effort to both try to identify those hotspots and then to try to take initiatives to reduce the risks in some of these places.
0: Now, several months ago, the two of us spoke on a WRI podcast about the the early warning system, which is a a, a way that you're able to identify the growing risk of water-related issues feeding into a conflict situation. Can you just recap a few of the the fundamental points about that?
1: Yeah, the early warning system is an effort to predict water-related conflict throughout parts of the developing world over the next 12 months. And we are using machine learning to try to forecast these places. We have our initial version of the Global Analyzer online and available to the public for free. Anybody can use it. That's one of the key goals of the early warning system is to predict potential violent conflict. But we also include a number of global conflict risk indicators on the tool. So so you can explore... Dozens of different water related risks, as well as social, political, economic, demographic risks that could lead to conflict.
0: To find out a bit more about the tool that Charlie is referring to, I checked out the Water, Peace and Security website. Well, I'm sitting at my computer now, and I've got waterpeacesecurity.org map up, and I can see what they call the global tool. And this basically gives us a map of the whole world. And it has areas where it's peaceful, areas where there's ongoing conflict and areas of emerging conflict. So if I zoom in and I've got uh, Mali in front of me, now you can see the whole of this Sahel area is lit up in yellow, which is the ongoing conflict. And then some of the small districts or what I imagine are sub-districts, are emerging conflicts. So that gives us a real idea about where things are, are about to happen. And if I flick over the whole of northern Nigeria, there's a lot, the Niger Delta. And then if I click on add data sets, hang on a second, there we go. You get all sorts of them, migration, water infrastructure, etc. So let's just add a couple of these on. If I look at water, for instance, there's one I can add which is called Baseline Water Stress. Uh, And this is from WRI's aqueduct platform. And straight away, we have a real vivid map in lots of shades of yellows, oranges, and dark, dark, dark reds, showing just how troubled certain parts of the world are with their baseline water stress. And straight away, places like Northern India through Afghanistan and Iran light up as particularly troubled areas. And of course, the Southwest United States into Northern Mexico, and that's the global tool. But then if I take a look at what it says is the regional tool, it says, whereas the global tool identifies potential conflict hotspots, the local approach builds towards the assessment of alternative intervention options locally. So basically, if the global tool is this way of just being able to envisage which parts of the world are troubled or are going to be in trouble in the near future, thanks to the overlay of all of these different data sets, the regional tool, allows this to be modelled in such a way that there are ways in which you can kind of unpick them and find out which ways you can alleviate or even resolve or avoid conflict altogether. You're listening to Big Ideas Into Action, WRI's relaunched podcast, this week looking at how we can resolve water-related conflicts around the world. So back now to Charlie Iceland and our colleague Ayushi Trevedi. They've just authored an important report looking at all of these issues and coming up with a comprehensive list of ways in which water-related conflicts can be fixed, ameliorated or avoided altogether. The report is called Ending Conflicts Over Water, Solutions to Water and Security Challenges, and it's rooted in extensive research in fragile locations around the world.
1: We have started working both in Mali and in Iraq to try to address water-related risks. In, in Mali, there's been a lot of conflict between farmers, pastoralists, and fishermen over increasingly scarce water and, and land resources. You know, the, These conflicts have been there throughout history, but typically th- there were locally designed ways to arbitrate the conflicts. Uh, Now, however, they're no longer working, and there's been more and more violence between these groups. In fact, there's been massacres by one group on another and and then retaliation with hundreds of people losing their lives. This has also destabilized Mali generally. Recently, the, the prime minister was forced to resign, and then most recently, there's been a coup to remove the president. This wasn't all due to uh, resource scarcity, but resource scarcity has played a role.
0: So can you just tell us some of the things that that have driven violence related to water, not just in Mali, but in the other areas that you've studied? I I understand that there's uh, areas such as uh, Iraq, there are uh, other parts of uh, of South Asia, uh, and then through into into Central America, which obviously has led to an enormous amount of, of migration northwards.
1: In Iraq, the the principal problem is in in southern Iraq, pollution and salinization of fresh water that's both impacting people's health, severe water quality problems that led to the hospitalization of 120,000 people in the city of Basra. There are also many people who are migrating out of Basra and other parts of southern Iraq, both because they don't have access to clean water and because the salinization that's taking place is ruining productive land resources, so, so farmers are being forced off their land. In other places like Central America, it's very severe and prolonged drought. Farmers have tried to continue farming the land. Some of them are going into debt. Some of them are are selling off parts of their land uh, or or all of their property in order to try to make it through the drought. But at this point, five years in, these farmers and their families are are leaving their farms. They're migrating to local cities. And in many cases, uh, these people are trying to make their way north to the United States uh, in search of economic opportunities. And so
0: the key thing is, if you can identify and then address those areas where the resource scarcity has played a role, you can then mitigate or even prevent the conflict. Uh, what kind of um, levers are there that you find that you could pull in a in a situation like Mali?
1: We have conflict resolution tools where you know once we bring the uh, opposing forces together, we can work to both identify what the problems are where the breakdown is is happening, and we can discuss ways of ameliorating the, the situation.
0: Ayushi, uh, you've been working on this, but from a very specific uh, perspective, and that is uh, gender and the role that uh, gender plays in it. Can you just outline the, the kind of rough direction that your, your analysis and your insights took?
2: At the beginning of the report, when we talk about the general drivers of the problem, uh, we also mentioned that you know, certain populations are more vulnerable to these impacts depending on a wide variety of socioeconomic characteristics, such as their income, where they live, their age uh, and gender is one of those key factors. And across the case studies, we see that women are more affected by conflict, by water-related problems, and that is because of their unique relationship to water. Across the world, we see that women and girls are the primary collectors of water. They walk hours a day to go out and get water for their families and communities. They're also mainly responsible for the use of that water within their families. And they are also disproportionately more engaged in rain-fed forms of farming or subsistence farming. So when there are climatic variations in the supply of water, they are disproportionately more impacted. And so it was important to have that gender equity lens when we talk about the solutions to these kind of problems, Um, not only having a gender equality solution as a whole, which is important, but also making sure that all of our other financial governance, technical solutions have this sort of perspective that they benefit both men and women, and they also include women's voices and make sure that their voices are heard when the solutions are designed. Just to highlight a couple of those solutions that we talk about, we we focus on participatory decision-making through different levels, so from the policy level to to a decentralized sort of water user groups level. And research around the world has shown that when women are involved in more decision-making roles, communities get measurably better outcomes. So that might be in terms of uh, how water is distributed or the payment of water, and that's true for also conflict management. So when women are involved in making decisions for peacekeeping, those decisions tend to last longer. And um, we also focus on policymaking, and especially when it comes to land and water right reforms. There are a lot of countries where women don't have equal rights and opportunities and can access resources in the same way that men can. And so it's important to note that policies that are attached to things like land rights will preclude women from benefiting from them. And so one of the solutions that we also suggest is to focus on land rights reforms, but pay special attention to the gender aspects of that. We also focus on the demand side pressures of water issues. So we talk about strategies that can help slow or reverse population growth rates. And there has been a lot of research around what are some solutions that might work on this. And the three main ones that come up are increasing the secondary education rate for girls, increasing access to reproductive health services and family planning options, and uh, reducing child mortality. But we mentioned in our report that along with these sort of technical solutions, for decreasing fertility rates, the the underlying sort of main solution is um, raising the status of women in society because all of these different solutions are only possible when women have the right to access these sort of different facilities and services.
0: So, Charlie, back to you, it's clear that from what, what Ayushi is saying, that this is not just a question of, of conflict. This is a question of if you solve this, then you can affect much wider issues of human development.
1: Yes. So, so we're not just looking at violent conflict. Uh, we're looking at all forms uh, of human insecurity and, and destabilization uh, of societies. So other things we look at are destabilizing migration, as I discussed, that. That's been happening in the hinterlands in in Central America. It's been happening in southern Iraq. People are having to leave their homes in search of livelihoods elsewhere. You know, we we also look at at problems of public health. Uh, So so we're not just looking at violent conflict. Uh, We're looking at the stability of societies.
0: And that was Charlie Iceland, and you'll also have heard the voice of Ayushi Trevedi. You can find the report they're talking about, Ending Conflicts Over Water, on the Water Programme section of our website, wri.org. Of course, as we've already heard, conflict is just the most extreme manifestation of water-related stress. To find out more, I turn to Kitty van der Hayden, Head of International Cooperation at the Netherlands Foreign Ministry, the main supporter of the entire WPS partnership.
5: Let's
6: first have a look at conflicts in human development. I think what you see is that where poverty is concentrated right now is in fragile states states that are very prone to conflict both within a country as well as between countries and for me to avoid human suffering and to contribute to human development writ large across all sectors whether it's education health political empowerment for women i need to look at what are those triggers for conflicts for fragility in countries and what we have seen through studies is that water and other natural resources are increasingly becoming a trigger for conflict. They're very seldom the one risk factor, but they multiply existing risks, including inequality, in equal access to, for example, water. Now, just think that you are, say, a family living in a place like Mali or in Egypt. Water is scarce. Water is increasingly becoming scarce because of climate change. But water is very essential for human survival. It's also essential for economic growth. It's essential for food security. It's essential for energy generation. So from whichever angle you're going to look at it, if you want to have the perspective to a better life, you need access to water, both at the individual level, at the community level, as well as at the society and country level. Now, with water becoming increasingly scarce, what we see is that if people feel there isn't enough water to go by and politicians feel that water is becoming increasingly scarce and leading to competition between states, that that will start to lead to conflict. People will start to migrate because without water, you simply cannot survive. Politicians will use water, I would almost say, as a weapon of war. And we've seen this in Syria. We've seen this in Iraq. And countries will actually start to fight if we're not careful over scarce water resources. So if you want to bring human development to a country or to a community, water is one of the central entry points, I would
0: say, that you need to look at. One final question, Kitty, and that's about the Water, Peace and Security Partnership. It's dealing with. Uh, in part with very, very advanced digital tools, machine learning, uh, looking at data and really finding ways to be able to process the data and find insights that maybe not, might not have been available 15 years ago or 10 years ago. Uh, how important it, is it to you that that this is an area that's really on the the, the cutting edge of uh, of technology and progress? It's a huge opportunity.
6: We're able to, to access data that we've never been able to to access before, and that helps us understand, I would say, the root causes of problems that we are facing. Data is easily accessible, it's widespread, it's numerous, but what is important nowadays is that we can also collect data from local communities, for example, that have data on cell phones on the ground, rather than just numerous satellites that have remote sensing data. So you have different types of data that you can start to combine now. It's very important for me not just to have these data, but to also make sure that everybody who needs it has access to the information and the data. Because that is what will lead to more effective solutions. So involving women, children, uh, youth, particularly to make sure that we craft with those data the solutions that work at local level is incredibly important. And I think what is with the data processing side that we have now, you can start to combine, and that's what's happening in the water, peace and security multidisciplinary data. So in water, peace and security, you have political data around where uprisings are happening. You'll have socio-economic data, you have environmental data, for example, on global warming, but also on water availability, on evapotranspiration trends. And so if you start to combine multidisciplinary data, you get a much richer picture of what's happening on the ground. And this gives us the blinking red light on the dashboard to start to act, whether it's humanitarian, whether it's diplomacy or with the development programmes, so we can help to address some of the root causes of these problems.
0: Kitty van der Hayden, Head of International Cooperation at the Netherlands Foreign Ministry. Just before we leave you for this week, here's our regular end of podcast feature about our WRI colleagues, a quick look at what motivates them in their work. This week, it's one of my colleagues in WRI's Europe office here in the Netherlands, who's helped drive the entire WPS project since its beginnings.
3: Hi, my name is Alberto Vallecchi, and i manage for the World Resources Institute, Institutional Relations for the Water, Peace and Security Partnership. I started being interested in water during my school years in Rome, the city where I was born. From the ancient Rome to recent time, the city has always had plenty of water, and still today it has over 2,000 fountains, more than any other city in the world. As a kid growing up in Rome, it's kind of easy to give water for granted. Later in my teenage years, I realized that not everybody's as lucky. In fact, a quarter of humanity faces looming water crisis. I found it mind-blowing to know that someone's life somewhere can be in danger because of lack of or competition over water. Nowadays, I also know that water insecurity is a bigger problem that can only be solved if we enable local communities to develop responses that improve water management, cooperation and exchange. That's why I believe the mission of the water, peace and security partnership is critical, and I'm proud that I can give an even the smallest contribution to these efforts with my work.
0: Alberto Pelecki, ending this week's Big Ideas into Action podcast from WRI, with me, Nicholas Walton. If you go to the podcast page on WRI.org, you'll find much more about this issue, including useful links connected with solving the critical issue of water-related conflict. Track us down wherever you download your podcasts and give us a rating. That's it for now. Goodbye.